0: Today's scripture comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my pants, my soul, for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my song.
1: You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Uh, This is a a special morning, not only because all Sunday mornings are special, but we have a a guest uh, preacher here with us this morning, so Nate Gast. Uh, I wanted Nate to, to come preach for you guys at some point because he's been such a big influence uh, in my life as well as even behind the scenes and how things have developed here at this church plant. Uh, so Nate, Nate is uh, one of the pastors at Life Point Church. He's the pastor of a discipleship there. Uh, when he travels, much like many pro athletes or rappers, he travels with a posse or an entourage. And so we are glad that you guys are here as well. Um, it, honestly, it's, it's an encouragement to have you guys here, and we're glad for you to, to, to see in the work that God's doing here and to prayerfully consider how, how you all can partner with us and what God's doing. So, uh, but, but Nate and his wife Kirsten, they have four girls. Uh, they lived uh, they still lived there, but before my family moved to Franklin, uh, they lived across the street from us, uh, which we felt the walkers in general was just a little too close to the gas. Uh, so we had to move down here to Franklin to get a little little distance. Uh, but, but seriously, Nate, Nate has been um, such a help to me in, in my just personal growth, Towards the Lord, uh, right out of college, I started meeting with him on occasion for coffee, and it was in a season where I was struggling whether or not to go into ministry. I was just struggling with all these things wrong I saw in the church, and, and I just, you know, he, he kind of settled me down. He's got that old man wisdom to just sit with me and listen and uh And so honestly Nate, I, I do appreciate those those years that you would make yourself available to me um, at one of our recent sojourn cohorts uh, they they asked kind of how we were developed as pastors, and one of the big ways was was guys like Nate making himself available, just making himself available to me and that was such a, a huge blessing for me. Um, He's been prayerfully kind of behind the scenes of what's been happening here. A lot of what he's developed at LifePoint with uh, raising up leaders and discipling people, uh, we've started to use some of that here. And so uh, Kevin had even given him a hard time for some of the books that that our elder candidates are having to read. A lot of that is because of Nate's hard work in in preparing some of those things. And so he's been a big part of of what already has happened here, but you guys haven't seen him or or heard from him. And so this is a, a cool morning for that. So, Nate, I'll have you come up and I'll, I'll pray for you. and um, I had to give you a little bit of a hard time because I knew I was about ready to turn the microphone over to you. So, all right. Father, I, I do thank you for Nate. I thank you for uh, the ministry, um, just the ways that he has ministered to, to, to Britt and myself, God, uh, the ways that he's been serving, a LifePoint and his family and, and the college students there. God, I thank you for his willingness to, to come and, and bring your word to us this morning. And so we ask that you would empower him, speak through him, open our, our, uh, open our ears and our hearts, Lord, to, to hear your word. Um, may it transform us, may it change us, and may we give you all the glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: Well, it's good to be back here. Uh, the last time I was here, I think, was your launch Sunday, which was a little over a year ago. Uh, and so it's good to see all the things that God is doing down here. Um, you should be encouraged with the fact that even now when I meet with Grant, uh, pastors a lot of times when we meet, uh, we kind of commiserate. Uh, we talk about what it's like walking with the flock and stepping in all the manure and things that, that sheep tend to leave behind. Uh, but Grant has never once uh, said anything that was in any way uh, discouraging to you guys as as a flock, and uh, he has nothing but uh, but positive things to say about you guys. He's very encouraged, and um, and then by proxy that comes to me as well. Uh, just thinking of all the things that the Lord is doing in congregations uh, that are not mine, and um, and so we are encouraged by what's going on just ten miles down the road. Um, about how the gospel is going forth and the name of Christ is being made known. So if you do have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open to Psalm 42 and to keep them open throughout the sermon because we're just going to walk through the text. And and it's really helpful if you can see it uh, because with any sermon that you guys hear, uh, you should not just take your your, your pastor's word for it. You need to see it in the text, make sure it's there. And so always hold us accountable uh, by doing that. Now I want to give you a, a little bit of a heads up that this morning's message may be a little bit heavy. Uh, it may be a little bit painful uh, because this is a very personal topic and, and not just for me and my life, uh, which I'll contextualize in a moment, but also uh, no, no doubt for some of you as well. And that's why I love the Psalms because there's a rawness to them. There's an honesty to them, and, and one of their purposes is to awaken our emotions and to show us that it's okay to, to feel deeply uh, about things because we were created as affectionate beings. And, and I don't know if your, your church is anything like mine. We're really good at, at kind of shaping the mind and, and giving you doctrinal lines and good theology. And I think sometimes that, that, that becomes a little bit of, a, of an impediment to, to feeling the faith uh, that, that we have been commanded, I think, to feel and to feel properly at times even though our emotions are not trustworthy all the time but neither is our thinking we think wrongly about things as well and and yet the, the psalms give honest expression i think to daily life and so pay attention in as you read through the psalms how often words like joy and despair and crying and longing how often they jump off the pages to us and they're really rich But the Psalms can also be very difficult because they don't fit so neatly into the defined lines of our doctrinal expectations. We have no problem saying verses like Psalm 103.1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. But we are puzzled when we get to Psalm 137.8, which says, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, blessed shall he be who repays you with all that you have done to us. What do we do with a verse like that? So in this way, the Psalms could be messy, but I, I think they put flesh on the bones of doctrine. And I can't remember who said it, but I remember a theologian saying, we get our theology from Romans, but the Psalms give us our thunder. And I really do believe that the Psalms are the heart and soul of the Bible. When doctrine proclaims God's omnipresence, the Psalms ask, where are you, God? In an honest and candid moment. When doctrine says, I can do all things through Christ, the Psalms cry out for help when all strength seems to be gone. And when doctrine says, wait patiently on the Lord, the Psalms say, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And so reading the Psalms is like driving up to a million dollar home. Everything looks like it's supposed to. The the lawn is manicured, uh, the shrubs are trimmed, all the rocks are put perfectly to accentuate the landscaping. Um, But if you go up to any of these rocks and you peel them back, you're going to be greeted with worms and spiders and and, and bugs that are crawling around in the darkness. And it's similar in the church. We're really good, really good at presenting perfection. And yet I've pastored long enough to know that all of us have creepy, crawly things under the rocks of our own lives. Doubts, sadness, despair. These are all emotions that we experience as believers. And sadly, we don't uh, express them very often when we gather together. And that's to our detriment, because if there's any place where brokenness and frailty should be acknowledged, it should be here. But even here, we are hesitant to display our weakness, because weakness has no place in an Instagram world, or even an Instagram church. And so we show up on Sunday morning, and we smile as if everything is okay, and we cry ourselves to sleep at night when no one knows, because after all, you you should be joyful, is the instruction we often give. Now, Mike Tyson, a world champion boxer, uh, once said, everybody's got a game plan until they get punched in the face. And life gave me my uppercut about 18 years ago when I came home from work uh, to discover that my mom had taken her life. And I won't go into the whole situation, uh, but here was a woman who loved Jesus, who loved the church, who looked the part of a happy wife and a happy mother, and yet somewhere along the line she had lost hope and she found no outlet for expression in the local body. And as the paramedics and the emergency personnel, they did, they did their work, and I didn't know what to do. Life doesn't prepare you for moments like that. I remember just kind of wandering through the house in a daze, just trying to make sense of everything. And I found myself in her bedroom, and opened on her bed was her Bible. And it was open to Psalm 69, which was tear-stained and dog-eared, and the pages had been worn. And here's, here are the verses that she had underlined said, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Now I was 24 at the time. And I don't know how to reconcile this with someone who claimed to walk with God. We're supposed to be happy and triumphant, aren't we? But the older I get, the more I understand it. In fact, the older I get, the more I experience it. I've sat and held the hand of a good friend as he took his last breaths as he battled cancer. I lost a child in a a miscarriage. I buried a mom and I felt the discouragement of, of many years of ministry as I've watched people walk away from the faith, as I've watched people bury loved ones, as I watched the gospel seem to just get stuck sometimes and not seem to make any headway. The longer I live, I find that the darker the clouds can be. At 20, there were certain Psalms I remember reading, thinking, what is wrong with this guy? He just needs to toughen up. This is life. But now, in my 40s, I find myself reading the same Psalms and thinking, yes, I feel that too. Where are you, God? Have you forgotten me as well? And despite our tendency to ignore this type of sentiment, I think that you can make the case that many of the main central characters in the Bible were plagued by this type of depression. Imagine the regret. I mean, seriously, imagine, put humanity in, the, in these characters for a minute. Imagine the regret that Adam must have experienced having walked with God in Eden. I mean, literally walked with God in a perfect world one moment, and then to have been cast from his presence and see all that sin was going to bring to the world, even as he watched one of his own sons be murdered. Or you look at Moses, who after decades of leading God's people, he's informed that he's not going to be allowed to enter the promised land. And you see this sorrow peppered throughout Psalm 90 and at the end of Deuteronomy. We know that David wrestled with this sentiment over and over again as he he grieved over his sin with Bathsheba and the murder that resulted and as his family fell apart later in life. And Jeremiah cries out to the Lord from a sister, not only doubting his call, but doubting the message that he was to give as well. And almost every prophet is overwhelmed at the prospect of leaving the land. And we're no different because life is hard in a fallen world and we cannot sugarcoat it and we need a better instruction when it comes to dealing with it. I used to coach high school basketball, and I, I remember getting frustrated with my athletes when they'd missed their free throws. And, and, and I was a brilliant coach, obviously, so it wasn't my fault. Uh, but I remember yelling out to them, make your free throws. Well, as I've gotten older, I thought, that's the worst instruction possible. The, the kid knows he's supposed to make his free throws. That's not what we're talking about. He just doesn't know how to do it, or he can't do it. But this is oftentimes how we deal with people in the church who are struggling with depression or anxiety or even just seasons of sadness. We say things like, the Bible says you just need to be joyful. Find your joy in Christ. If only it were that simple. Some of you have been battling chronic pain in your bodies for a long time and relief just doesn't come. Or you have family circumstances like struggling and failing marriages or rebellious children. Or you even look around at the wickedness of this world and you wonder, where is God? And you have to fight for hope because it doesn't come naturally. And you, just like my mom and like David in Psalm 69, you say, my throat is parched with crying out for God. You've been pleading with him and there's no answer. It's amazing how deafening the silence of God can be at times. And this is the sentiment of our psalm this morning. It is a man with questions, a man with honest doubts, but it's of a man who's fighting for hope in a messy and fallen world. He's on his knees, exposed before God. I want to pray, and then we will uh, we'll walk our way through the text. Heavenly Father, man, I thank you so much for Sunday mornings. Just one day in seven where we get to put everything on the side, and we get to gather and celebrate the resurrection. That the ultimate hope that we will talk about this morning is because Jesus Christ lives and because there is redemption and eternal life to be found in him and in him alone. We thank you that you are sovereign over all things, even over our sadness and depression. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here who have taken time to gather. I pray that this word would be encouraging to them, that we would leave here with a renewed hope and a renewed vigor, uh, and just a reminder that you would encourage our hearts this morning. We love you. We thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Well, I encourage you, keep your Bibles open. We're just going to walk through the text. I want to point out a handful of verses as we get to them. Now, you'll notice the heading of the psalm in 42. It says, to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. Now, the sons of Korah were a group of priests who were in charge of, of the temple singing, which implies that this psalm was probably used in corporate worship. And there's strong evidence that Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 at one point were probably just one psalm. If you read Psalm 43, you'll see the same refrain and the same chorus, but over time it would have been divided up. And it's referred to as a maskil. And we're not entirely sure what that, um, what that word means, but it seems to come from a Hebrew word, which means to make wise or to instruct. And so one of the goals of this psalm is to teach us. And that's what is unique about the Psalms, that they don't just simply express emotions, but they actually teach us how to feel them properly because we're effective beings. We do feel and we feel deeply. And so the goal this morning is that we'll watch a man navigate through the darkness and seek to rekindle his hope as an example for us as to how we might do this appropriately through the seasons of darkness that we go through. And so look at the situation. God seems very distant to him. He's longing for his presence. He says, when will I be before you again, God? And I think all of us have experienced this. Sometimes it's because there's sin in our lives that's, that's, that's breaking up the unity that we have with Christ, or at least it feels that way. And sometimes it's simply because God has chosen to lead us into the wilderness, to, 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 to shape us and to train us and to pull back his presence that we might know what it's like to thirst for him even more. And those are times when our prayers bounce off the ceilings. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. And we begin to question God's goodness and his purpose for us. On top of that, this guy's being mocked. His enemies are standing around and you see verses three and verses 10, they're saying, where is your God? That They see a crack in his armor and they seek to exploit it. And that mocking continues today. I came across a billboard a few years ago, and it just said, the rapture, 2,000 years of any day now. You know it's nonsense. We're mocked at every turn for our view of marriage and sexuality, even our view of creation. And you'll hear our culture say, it's time to move out of the Stone Age and realize that there's other answers for these things. All that Bible is, is fake news. And Jesus told us that we would be mocked. And I'm always baffled at how surprised so many in our culture are when it actually happens. Jesus said, if, we, if the world hated him, it's going to hate us as well. In fact, that some of the markers, I think, of being Christ-like are that our culture will not embrace us at every turn. So we've got to stop being surprised. But it's not always an external enemy that plants these questions. Sometimes they come from within. And haven't we all asked, God, where are you? And if you're here, why aren't you doing something? And if you're good, why are you not delivering me from this trial? This is where this man is. He wants God to show up. Look at the descriptions that are used. Verse two, I thirst, right? There's an emptiness there. Verse three, my tears have been my food day and night. It's continual. There's no break. Verse five and 11, he said he's cast down. There's turmoil there. Verse seven, says that he's drowning. And we've been there. You're crying out. There's just no more tears. You feel abandoned, alone, mocked. You're sinking beneath the waves. You've thrown your hand up for help, but no help seems to come. But I want you to notice that despite all of this, verses 5 and 11, they provide the chorus for this psalm. Look at what it says. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. That's the theme hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And that's the point this morning. How do we fight and kick at the darkness when it seems overwhelming? How do we learn to feast on joy rather than on tears? So I'm going to point out a number of things uh, that the psalmist does to combat the despair. And I give you a heads up, I'm going to break all the preaching rules, okay? I don't have three points. And as a good Calvinist, I don't even have five. So I have seven points. So we're going to go through them pretty quickly. All right, Grant said, the nice thing about preaching with only one service is I don't really have to be done. Um, <laughs> and I don't have to worry about being invited back either. So, um, so we'll go through these relatively quickly. So the first thing that he does is he speaks honestly. Right, he voices an honest concern to God. He says in verse nine, God, why have you forgotten me? Now, this is not an accusatory question. It's not an abandonment of his faith. For he had just stated previously, before he said this, that God is his rock. And in verse 8, he had just confessed God's steadfast love. So he knows that God has not truly forgotten him. But like all of us, he's prone to forgetting these things. He's not stating a theology, a theological reality, but rather a poetic expression of his heart. He's saying, it looks like you've forgotten me, God. Why aren't you consuming my enemies? Why aren't you quenching my thirst? And why aren't you giving me reprieve from these trials? This is an important point, I think, because sometimes we fail to speak honestly to God. We pray, as, as like everything's okay. It's like asking your wife, what's wrong? And she says, nothing. You know something's wrong and you're going to find out soon enough. Look, God knows what's wrong. Psalm 139 says that there's not a word that is on our tongue that he doesn't know before we speak it. So you can't tell God something that he doesn't already know. And I encourage you to do this. When we gather together, fight the urge to, to, to pray piously like everything's fine when it's not. Cry out when you need to. Be honest with each other and with the Lord. We gather together and we say, Lord, thank you so much for your goodness to me. When reality, our, our, our voices are going, God, I don't, I don't, have, I don't know what to say. And instead of crying out and looking for help among friends and brothers and sisters, probably who are dealing with the same thing, we piously present everything's right. And then we show up and go, oh, there's no room for brokenness here. Nobody's broken. Everybody's smiling. Everything's fine. Secondly, he confesses that God loves him. Notice the confession in verse 8 precedes the question of the why in verse 9. If we could all be so measured in our complaints before God, how great would it be before we lashed out in despair or frustration? We confessed what we knew to be true. Not because God needs to know it, but because we need to know it better. This is why it's so important for us to have a deep knowledge of Scripture hidden in our hearts and in our minds, to have it memorized so that when those moments of doubt and despair begin to creep in, we can fire back with passages like Romans 8, 31 through 39. I, I want to read it this morning. Um, I love the fact that we read the first part even heading up to this. But just pay attention. This is so familiar. Don't let the familiarity just go over your head. All right? Ponder what is expressed in this text. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, That's a great text. I I can't give you instruction how to deal with the hardship in your life, but God's word can. It's the antidote to doubt. It's the prescription to despair. These verses are the bullets that we use to battle fear. And sadly, we don't treasure them enough. We don't memorize them and we don't go to them immediately in our darkest moments. We go to self-help books because it's easier than pondering the great treasures that God has given us in his word. In some ways, these verses, they act like wedding rings for us because there are moments in a marriage when harsh words are spoken and affections wane and we may be tempted to doubt the the, the nature of our union. Then we look at our finger and we see the ring and we're reminded of the covenant. And then we move from a focus on sentiment to a focus on status. She's my wife. That's who she is. I made a promise to her. In the same way, God is a promise-keeping God. He never divorces his bride, and he never unadopts his children. For those who are in Christ, we are loved eternally. End of story. Even when we cannot sense it, it is a steadfast and persevering love. Our perception of God's love is not its ultimate reality. It's a reality whether you sense it or not. Thirdly, look again at verse 8, and I love this. He sings. Responding to God's love causes him to break out in song despite the darkness. Now, it's probably not a happy and victorious song. Not all songs are. It is well with my soul is one of my favorite songs. But it's a song of proclaimed surrender. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well. With my soul. Now, that's a song that's written from a very dark place. If you know the story, Horatio Spafford had just lost four daughters in a boating accident as they were going across the Atlantic and as he was meeting up to go join his wife in Europe. He, he sails over the spot and he sits down in the darkness and he writes those songs. That's a sad song sung in the middle of the night. It's easy for us to sing these great celebratory songs on a Sunday morning. what about Monday night when no one else is around? The noise has died down, the house is empty, and the hope is just a flickering candle. And look at how he phrases it. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. It's not a jubilant song. It's a pleading song, a weeping one, but it's a prayerful song. Songs of faith are not always sung in victory with raised hands, But sometimes they're sung from the knees with empty hands. And in my opinion, the church needs to learn how to do this again. We need to learn how to weep. We need to learn how to hit our knees and realize, I only cling to the cross. I have nothing else. I have no other plea. But that Christ loved me and that he died for me. Sing through the tears. Because there's a strange joy in the surrender that a believer has. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6.10, he says, We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You see, for a Christian, sorrow and joy are not sequential emotions. We don't grieve and then rejoice. We do them both at the same time. And I understood this the morning after my mom died. It was finals week, and I was a school teacher at a Christian school on the west side And uh, I had to go in that next morning and print off finals uh, because I would not done that um, yet. I obviously wasn't expecting um, all that that transpired to take place. When I got to school, I walked to my classroom, and all of the teachers were already in my room waiting for me when I got there. And I walked in, and no words were spoken. Everybody just embraced and, and started to weep because we share each other's burdens. But as is usually the case, when you gather with good friends, laughter soon followed. And I remember wondering, Paul, is this what you meant? To, to, to be grieved and yet to have it peppered with joy and laughter. And you, some of you know this feeling when the, when the heights of joy and, and the depths of sorrow come crashing together and you can't figure out what's going on. Your, your cheeks are wet with the tears and there's snot coming out your nose and you're an absolute mess, but you're laughing. With good friends, and you feel encouraged, and you sit there and go, Oh my goodness, I'm going crazy. I don't know what to do with these things. I think that's the Christian life in a nutshell. To weep and to laugh. We're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Friends, we're a singing people. It's just what we do. We've done it for thousands of years, and and I don't know if you like to sing or not, but we're gonna do it for eternity. And so we need to learn to sing in the sorrow to make melody to the Lord, even when our voices are cracking and even when there's only enough strength to whisper out a tune. Fourthly, he reminds himself of God's sovereignty. And I think this is a, kind of the, the linchpin to the whole psalm. Verse seven, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me your breakers and your waves. He recognizes that all of these circumstances are ordained by God. All the trials, all the mocking, all the sorrow is part of God's plan and it comes from God's hand. And this sort of thing causes the world to question God's goodness, but it should cause us to trust all the more because God is a good God and he desires good for his children even when we don't see it. And the sovereignty of God should be one of those doctrines that we cling to with all of our strength. I love what Spurgeon says. There it is, it's on the board. There's no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. It is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon the throne whom we trust. He is God of the storm as well as God in the storm. And sometimes he leads us into the wind to bend us and to break us. And I'm reminded of another Spurgeon quote when dealing with trials in his own ministry. He said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. In the same way, may we learn to treasure any circumstances that force us to cling to Christ because he's all that we've got. Think of the grace that's there where God wipes away every support beam you've got to all you have to cling to is Christ. That's his goal. That's why the trials exist. Next, the psalmist looks back, and it's interesting to see what he remembers. Verse four, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Isn't it interesting? The things he remembers are not just the good old times. He remembers worshiping with other believers. One of the things that can happen when we despair is that we begin to throw our own little pity party. That's what my my mom would say. Stop having a pity party. Now, isn't this what Elijah does in 1 Kings 19? You remember the story? He just challenged the prophets of Baal. He went around mocking them and God showed up and threw fire down from heaven, a tremendous victory. But Jezebel isn't happy about this. And she threatens to kill him. And so he flees. He stands up to 400 prophets just fine. But the queen so much it says, boo. And he takes off running. He goes into the wilderness. And the text says, sat under a broom tree and asked the Lord if he could die. That's sorrow right there. When God asked him, why are you there? Elijah's response is great. God, I've been jealous for your name. But I'm the only one. So take my life. Now, God could have crushed him right there and been justified in doing so. But if you remember the story, God graciously says, Elijah, go stand on the mountain. And God passes him in a wind so strong it rips rocks off the side of the mountain. Then there's an earthquake and then there's a great fire. But we're told that God was not in those things. Instead, he whispers to Elijah and he says, Elijah, you're not alone. There are 7,000 other people who have been faithful Now, God could have fed him. God fed him. He displayed his power to him, and he'd given him great victories. But the way that God encouraged Elijah was reminding him, you're not alone in this. There are others who are part of the covenant as well. And once God told him this, he left with renewed vigor and went about his ministry. Friends, I cannot state this strongly enough. One of the most deadly things that you can do in your life is to neglect meeting together for worship. Satan loves to isolate you from other Christians. It's my opinion that to begin the habit of skipping church on Sunday for the million of excuses that we've got. I got four daughters. I know how hard it is to get children. Well, I really don't know. My wife knows how hard it is to get children ready uh, for church in the morning. But you begin the process of skipping church. It is a slow and certain road to ruin. I, I work with a lot of young people. There's a certain idealism there. I run into them all the time and say, I don't need the church, just give me Jesus. It makes for a really good bumper sticker. It doesn't make for a really good Christian life because to have the head without the body is to have an incomplete Christ. To neglect gathering with other believers is the surest way to find yourself under a broom tree crying out and saying, God, I'm all alone. There's no one else. We gather not just to be taught information from a sermon. If that's why you're here this morning, I got bad news for you. You should have stayed home and turned on a better preacher online. It is way easier to find better sermons online than it is here. No offense. I'm speaking about this morning. We gather not just to, to get information. We gather for transformation. We gather that the Holy Spirit would be used in our lives as we pursue holiness through our intellect as we gather things, but that our hearts might be encouraged with one another as well. Because when we gather on Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection. It's why we, it's why we meet on Sunday mornings, to remember the cross and to sing even when our hearts are far from the lyrics. Because we don't always mean it in an honest moment. When you sing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Do you realize what you're saying? And sometimes we don't mean it, but it's, we, we, we mean it more as a prayer. I hope to stand into these things, Lord. That's where I want to be. And so I'm going to say it and I'm going to sing it with my brothers and sisters. And so we make these, these lyrics sometimes more of, of a request than a fact. We also gather to hear others sing. One of my favorite things to do, I just got back from a conference with 8,000 college kids. Uh, and one of my favorite things to do during that conference was to just sit and listen. And just listen to 8,000 people sing and let my heart be encouraged. And so there may be times when you gather on a Sunday morning and you say, I, I'm just mouthing the words. There's no real, I, I can't muster up enough strength. Just sit and let your brothers and sisters listen to their voice. Let them encourage you by their singing. We gather in celebration for sure, but we also gather in support and in grief and in service to our King collectively, together, right? Christ dies for his church, his bride, collectively, all of us. And often our moments of greatest sorrow, we want to withdraw. We, we don't want others to see us like this. We're, we're afraid of expressing weakness and brokenness. And yet the thing the psalmist longs for In his pit of despair is for corporate worship to be with brothers and sisters again. Earlier, I had mentioned that the morning after my mom died, I was back at school and I was surprised by how many people came up to me and said, why are you here? It was just 12 hours ago. Why are you back here? I went in because that's where my best friends were. That's where I was going to be surrounded by people reminding me, look, God is still on his throne. God is still good. This is a season of despair and let us grieve and let us grieve well. But there is hope because God has an abiding presence with his people and his promises are certain. I don't care who you are. If you think you can make it through life without each other, as a lone ranger Christian, you're naive at best and you're a fool at worst. And so I encourage you, don't take these moments that that we gather together. Don't take these lightly. I spend a lot of time reading about the persecuted church because it just brings perspective to my life. Um, And these are men and women who will risk their lives just to meet up. They just want to see another believer. They just want somebody else to pat them on the back and say, you too? I thought I was the only one. And to be encouraged just by the presence of being around other believers. If only we could regain that in the United States to appreciate walking in and being around each other. We are family. And the church is one of the means, along with the promises, but the church is one of the means that God has given us to help us persevere in the faith. And for the psalmist, it's just not this empty sentimentalism. It's a real encounter with God via meeting with people. Can we annoy each other? Yes. Are people going to say dumb things all the time every Sunday? Is this a perfect church? Absolutely not. They don't exist. And if you find one, don't show up because it won't be perfect anymore. But this is family. Like what you guys have here is this is family. And despite the dysfunction, there should be something very comforting about walking through those doors on a Sunday morning and coming into this house. It's the same with your your own family, isn't it? Every, Every family has that uncle that they don't talk about. And if you're trying to figure out who that uncle is, it's you, right? You know that. Some of you are that uncle. And you may not know the dysfunction. Nobody knows the true dysfunction of their family until they get married. And their wife shows up at the first Christmas, gets in the car to leave, and goes, whoa, your family is messed up. And you smile, and you go, yeah, I suppose we are, but I love it. It's home, and we put the fun in dysfunction. I'll let you do the phonetics there. Sixthly, and we're wrapping this up but he looks forward. So he looks back and he looks forward. Verse two, when will I come and appear before God? When will I see him? And then in verse five and 11, he says, I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. He knows the promise. Notice that he's not necessarily praying for relief. He's not even asking for his enemies to be destroyed. Rather, he is seeking the very presence of God. He wants more of God. He knows that's the only thing that will quench this thirst. Friends, The season of struggle is temporary. It's a season, that's it. And the trial's real. I don't want to diminish that, but it pales in comparison to the satisfaction of having God as your supreme treasure. This is what Paul expresses in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. I think it's up there. Is it up there? There we go. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away our inner self, is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. Look at this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's not even worth comparing as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, Paul's trials are not light by any earthly standard, beaten, shipwrecked, imprisoned, but they pale in comparison to eternal things. And this is why the psalmist can say in verses 5 and 11, I will again praise him. He knows that this will pass. It may last his entire life. But scripture tells us that this life is a vapor and is gone in an instant. Friends, it is okay to wail, but we cannot wallow because Jesus lives. Now, if he were still in the tomb then there's nothing but sorrow and hopelessness. And, and what does Paul tell us? That if Jesus is still in the tomb, we of all people are most to be pitied. But if you are in Christ and you have placed your faith in Christ, you've given your life to Christ, then there is an eternal hope because Jesus lives. And finally, and almost all the previous points fit under this. And so this is kind of your application point for the, for the morning. He preaches to himself. And this is the essence of the chorus in verses 5 and 11. You look at it. He says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He poses a rhetorical question that is designed to awaken his heart. It's as if he interrupts himself and he says, Okay, enough is enough. I'm going to speak to you, and you're going to answer me. Why are you downcast? Martin Lloyd Jones, in his book Spiritual Depression, He makes the point. He says, you realize someone's always talking to you. Is it a culture that says you deserve better? You're entitled to earthly happiness. You should pursue your true self. Is it your past that whispers condemnation and regret? Is it your circumstances that shout hopelessness? Or maybe you have friends like Job's wife that just say, look, curse God and die. If God really loved you, this wouldn't be happening. Well, Lord Jones says this, Have you not realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself? So we learn to preach God's word to ourselves. We learn to wake up every morning and preach the hope of the gospel. The psalmist interrupts himself as if he says, get up and recognize that if you have God, you have everything. So why is there turmoil? Hope in God because you know he's sovereign. You know he's good. You know he's loving. You know he quenches thirst. You know he delivers people. You know he saves. And you know that his presence is always with his people. That's the root of our hope, friends. Not in our ability to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps, but in God's power and his presence with his people. There's great freedom in surrender when you stop contending. So when Satan comes and and whispers to you, hey, you're a wretch. You're an absolute wretch. You do not deserve salvation. Just agree with him. He's absolutely right. You don't deserve it and neither do I. But then you can point to the cross and you can say, look, my sin was dealt with right there. And that empty tomb, that's the victory that Jesus has gained for me. And because of that, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So yes, Satan, you're right. I don't deserve it. But let me tell you what my great Savior has done on my account, and I'm banking on that. And so when the world tells you that you deserve a better situation than what you've got, you remind them it's coming. There's an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses anything that this world has to offer. These are just shadows. This is not the best life now. That's a bad title to a book. You wouldn't trade anything that when we see the beauty of our risen Lord, there's none of us who's going to say, man, I really wish I'd have spent more time enjoying these pleasures. Christ is our satisfaction. That is our greatest treasure. That is where at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so when you preach the gospel to yourself, this is important. You're reminded of your helplessness. You're reminded of your need of God's provision. You're reminded of the beauty, the majesty, and the sufficiency of Christ. He's all you need. You realize that you're free from sin and death and condemnation. You remember that you share in Christ's ultimate victory and the promise of salvation through faith. In short, the shadows, the darkness of this world begin to disappear in the radiance of the beauty of Christ's face. Friends, this is how we hope in God. We're going to take that phrase, hope in God, which is at the center of this psalm. This is how we do it. We preach the the gospel to ourselves every day. We build our lives on the rock, and though the storms come, we stand firm in hope. Sometimes we we read that story in Matthew 7 about the two men who built, one on the sand, one on the rock, and we forget that the storms came to both houses. One just stood firm in the storm because it was built on Christ, a sure and steady foundation, as we sang this morning, a sure and steady anchor. At some point, you're going to have to figure out where you're going to seek shelter when the storms come. Is it going to be your job, your 401k, your ability, your goodness? Will it be a powerless idol or a false religion whose God is still in the grave? If that God's still in the grave, then how in the world can he provide any sense of hope for you? But Jesus conquers death, the last enemy, the scriptures say. And so because he has done that, he's the source of all of our hope. remember reading, you guys remember the tsunami that struck in the Indian Ocean, that ah, was probably 10 years ago. Time goes a little faster when I get older. I remember reading the testimony of a man through that, through that tsunami who came to know Christ. And he said the, the moment for him was he was being swept down the street in the water. And he looked and there was his idol floating right beside him. And he said at that moment, he said, if this idol, if this God can't save himself from a tsunami, then what hope do I have? And he began investigating the Christian faith because he'd heard some missionaries were in town doing some relief work. Look, friends, life is hard, even for God's people. In some ways, God has told us, we will have trial in this life. Samuel Rutherford reminds us of this. He says, your rock does not ebb and flow, just your sea. And so may we be a people who build our hope on the sure foundation so that when the waves come crashing down, we feel, like we're gonna, we feel like we're drowning. We can say, God is my rock and my fortress. Why am I scared? Why am I at turmoil within me? If I have the promises of God, I have everything. And so fight for hope, friends, even from your knees, especially from your knees. For you shall again praise God. He is our salvation, our refuge, and our supreme treasure. He's a good God, and he desires good for his people, and he's a promise-keeping God. Amen? Let me pray.